Hi everybody, just a quick note about today's episode. I have to apologize in advance for the audio quality. We recorded this podcast remotely with new equipment, and the initial recording turned out almost unusable. I'm not sure what happened, but I was able to salvage the audio and smooth over most of the rough edges. That said, it is still not up to my usual standards. I'm posting it anyway because I believe the content is strong and I don't want our efforts to go to waste. This was a really good discussion and I think the audio is passable. So I appreciate you giving this a listen and I do apologize for the quality. I won't let it happen again in the future. Thanks and enjoy. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. What can be said about Bob Dylan that hasn't been said already? At this point, nothing. Every conceivable facet of this man's life and career have been discussed to death in every conceivable way. But that was as true in 1964 as it is today. This man has never not been talked about. Every single year since his musical debut, there have been articles, interviews, biographies, documentaries, TV specials, radio specials, podcasts, social media posts, or any other form of recorded conversation, all focusing on this one guy, Bob Dylan. But I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. We keep talking about him, even though everything's already been said. That's the testament to what an incredible impact he's had. Not just on our music, but on our culture at large. So in the great American tradition of talking about a guy we've never met, my friend Chris and I are going to have a series of conversations about the man and his music broken down by the decade. In this debut episode, we explore Dylan's early years and his glory years of the tumultuous 1960s. After a few months of busking around in Greenwich Village, Dylan skyrocketed to superstar status on just his second album. And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rain gonna fall. He was immediately labeled the voice of a generation and it was assumed he would inherit the torch of American folk music that had been carried by Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger before him. But as the 60s grew more contentious, the various factions of American culture started to push and pull at him in all different directions. He was expected to be a protest singer, a folk singer, a political figure, a philosopher, a poet, an intellectual, a celebrity, and to a degree, he was all of those things. But above everything else, he was an artist, a songwriter. And in time, his songwriting would take him away from the cultural cliques that claimed him as their own. In 1965, he plugged in his guitar and produced three of the greatest albums ever in quick succession. But at the time, this elicited a year's worth of boos, catcalls, and negative reviews at each of his concerts, as folk fans decried him as, of all things, a sellout. 
I don't know what he's trying to do. I think he's conceding to the, you know, to some sort of popular taste. I think he's prostituting himself. I don't believe you. Well, it's just sick listening to this rubbish now. You're a liar. The press badgered him with inane, condescending questions. Invasive fans climbed over the fence at his house just to pester him with requests for autographs and conversation. And that's to say nothing of the professional demands from his exhausting tour schedule and crooked management. It was all too much. In 1966, a motorcycle accident put everything on hold, and Bob was able to refocus on what really mattered to him, the music. He spent his recovery time recording with his most famous collaborators, the band. There must be some way out of here, say the joker to the theme. After that, he released an album that included a song which would come to represent the entire decade when performed by another 60s icon. And he closed out the decade by setting his sights down south with a collection of music created in Nashville. Lay, 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 lay across my big brain's bed. So it's time to sit back and pour yourself a glass of Heaven's Door whiskey. As over the next hour and change, Chris and I are going to take you through Bob Dylan's early records and most heralded years. This is Dylan Through the Decades, Part 1, Bob Dylan in the 1960s. When you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. You're invisible now, you got no secrets to conceal. Minnesota didn't stay there very long. I watched No Direction Home earlier this week. He doesn't seem to have any like fond memories of it. I think he has like some personality traits that someone born in a small town in rural Minnesota might have, but he doesn't seem to you know look back fondly and wistfully about his his childhood. So he moved out to New York, Greenwich Village, very happening place, and he gets started basically the same way that all those Grinch Village artists did, where he's busking around on street corners at first and then into the coffee shops and uh, bars and places where they'd be doing poetry slams and comedy routines. One of my favorite parts of the first section of Chronicle, Volume 1, is that he talks about being friends with Tiny Tim in those days. (laughs) Can you imagine being a fly on the wall around Bob Dylan and Tiny Tim in early 60s New York before either one of them broke through. I, I like to imagine, I, I want to hear like the harmony the two of them could have made. <laughs> <laughs> Tiny Tim's beautiful falsetto. Mm-hmm. No. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. They stayed friends. Like I, I did not know that. Yeah. They, in one of the other books I read, they, they mentions him hanging out with him deep into the 60s. I don't know if they stayed friends beyond that. Yeah, I know we're not taking too far to buy it, but I read Chronicles when it came out, and uh, I, don't, I don't remember. I remember like really obscure things from it. I don't remember that part about him being friends with Tiny Tim. That was the point I, I wrote down immediately. It's just like that's funny. I would like to see how they hang out. I mean, he talks about loving Gordon Lightfoot. Yes, yes, that it, stuck with me. 
I, you know, it was interesting reading, if nothing else, re he really spells out his influences mm -hmm. specifically. You know, uh, I had never heard of Dave Van Ronk before reading his book and seeing No Direction Home. And there's all sorts of like, r I would think, very obscure American folk acts. And he's like an encyclopedia of these guys yeah. and, and this music. So it was it was very cool to see like this dude truly had a bedrock of American folk music before he even was put on record. And you see that a little bit in that first record of his. Came out in March 1962. Only two originals on there. The rest were covers. Very much proto Dylan, right? He's not fully formed. And that music there is not timeless in the same way the rest of his 60s stuff is. It is very of the early 60s. And there was a few of them that I liked quite a bit, though, particularly his originals. Talk in New York, which is about uh, basically what he was doing, you know, busking and, and going from shop to shop. I thought that was a cool little window into what his deal was. And then, of course, the song that he said was the first song I'd end up writing of any substantial importance was written for Woody Guthrie, and that is Song to Woody. So, obviously, identifying a very clear early inspiration. Hey, Woody Guthrie, but I know that you know All the things that I'm a-saying and a many times more I'm a-singing you the song, but I can't sing enough Cause there's not many men who've done the things that you've done how do you like that first record? It's funny when you told me that he says that, uh, you know, about it being the only real work of art or the first thing he did that was important. When, when you first started that record, when we were doing this whole crazy thing with the, the whiskey, we were starting this whole thing up, I said, there's like one song on that album that's like truly like recoverable. And, the, and they said it's, it's actually a really good song. It's, like in my, it's my top telling song. It's a song of Woody. Oh, no kidding. Because um, it is. I think it, it's, it's the standout from that record. Um, yeah. And it's the song that made me discover what made me discover Woody Guthrie. Like it, it pushed me to actually like, who is this guy that, right. Dylan, that Dylan likes him so much? I, you know, wasn't super versed at that time in the, in the, the folk genre. So the other the other track that uh, sticks out on that first record for me is also his version of House of the Rising Sun. When I first saw it on there, I thought, oh, okay, that's fairly typical for a folk act. That's a very you know classic um, Americana song. But like. His version ended up being fairly important because the animals, when they had their hit a couple years later, that was totally based on his composition. But, you know, what I found out is that his composition is actually that Dave Van Ronk guy's composition. But I like his version of House of the Rising Sun, which means I probably also like Dave Van Ronk's, but I've never heard it. <laughs> What's, what's interesting, though, is his, his version is, is sung from the perspective, like, lyrically, is sung from the perspective of the, of the woman. Dylan's version is. Is that right? Okay. Many a poor girl, and me I know I'm one. It's been a ruin of many poor girls, and me, oh God, I'm a one. Singing from the perspective of the prostitute working at the House of the Rising Sun, not the, not the John. All right, which is different than the. I mean, the animals' arrangements the same, but yeah. they're very well. Obviously, 
you know, different with, like, yeah, you know, it's the, the, the core yeah, of that. Yeah, but I mean, I don't think I have the best descriptive words for actual music composition, <laughs> you know, where it's just like, I understand there's a difference between the music that the, the animals put out on that song and, but they, you know, they followed the bones, yeah. if you will, of what, what Dylan said. I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's good that you have a music podcast then. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's a uh, <laughs> real seal of quality. You're the you're the color commentator, but with all the technical commentator. <laughs> you know who I am? I'm Fred Willard in Best in Show, yeah. you know? There you go. <laughs> hey, what's that noise over there? How did they do that? <laughs> all right. Another track down there is Highway 51. Mm. I don't know if that has any relation to Highway 61, but the original song is written by a blues man, Curtis Jones, and I just point that one out because it's got a little Wisconsin reference in there. Running from Wisconsin, way down to no man's land. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. That first record, in no direction, homie, says once... He was done with it. He listened to it and immediately never wanted to hear it again or wanted to move on as quickly as he could to his next stuff. Because, like, at that point, he was already done doing cover songs for the most part. Mm -hmm. He was doing his own music. And I think he had Blowing in the Wind written, at least the lyrics for it, written before his first album was even out. So I think he was really chomping at the bit to release the Freewheeling Bob Dylan, one of the great album titles of all time. 
Yeah. That came out in May 1963. Freewheeling Bob Dylan featuring Blowing in the Wind, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, Girl from North Country, Masters of War, Down the Highway, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, several others. That's almost a greatest hits record. Yeah, it's got probably four, at least, at least four songs on it that I think are, are generally referenced as being sort of in the cultural canon as being like, you know, just part of Dylan's overall catalog that mm-hmm. should never be... Certainly blown. I mean, blown in the wind became the anthem of the '60s. Although I did get a quote out of uh, the book "Down the Highway" from Pete Seeger, who said, "Blown in the wind is not my favorite. It's a little easy." And I found I that to be sort of an interesting perspective. Yeah. So you agree with that? Yeah. When Dylan sings it, it's acceptable. When I hear like a Peter Paul Mary cover of it, <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not trying to degrade Peter Paul Mary. Like I said, we, we, the last podcast right. I said, I kind of like some of Peter Paul Mary. Absolutely. Stuff. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. But there, theirs is the iconic version, mm-hmm. I think. The one that, that kind of came to be known as the... The pop success. The, the pop success for, for Blowing You know, that's a little easy. Yeah. And I see Seeger's point. I mean, when you have Masters of War, when you have Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, when you have... I mean, these other songs that are on that album are... Even a song Oxford Town, I think, is, is a more powerful lyrically um, than Blowing in the Wind. Girl from the North Country is a, more, a better song. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Blowing from the Wind, uh, number two hit on the Billboard charts for Peter, Paul, Mary. Bob's version didn't chart. <laughs> he released it as a single, did not chart at all. Same manager, by the way, as Peter, Paul, and Mary. Well, we talked about this. I mean, not a lot of Dylan charted. Right. <laughs> That's right. And he's, he's well, scored not, one number one, which will hit in the, the 2020s. The so final the, episode yeah, the final of the show. <laughs> it took a pandemic year Yeah, for him to finally get number one. Yep, yep, but he did get it. He got that off his list. You know, there's a, a lot of acts that didn't, so good for him. All right, well, you mentioned it. Let's talk about Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, and I'm going to go right back to Pete Seeger. Uh, he's quoted as saying, Hard Rain is almost my favorite. I think it will last longer than it almost any others now that i agree with 100% that is my favorite song of dylan's early 60s album and it's a hard 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 rain you're gonna fall i don't want to say protest rock or whatever you know just early era dylan hard rain is gonna fall that's master class of a song the thing is i don't even think it's necessarily a protest song i know it gets looped it gets people say it's referencing like the um cuban missile crisis yeah dylan wrote it and performed it prior to the cuban missile crisis so right there that's not the case Uh, i think when you really listen to it it's it's timeless because it's so like a lot of dylan stuff intentionally bad he, he described it as, in a couple of ways, my understanding is he described it as either being the start of, like, 30 songs that he thought he'd never be able to write. Mm. If you listen, each one of the each one of the, the lines almost stands independently. And then he also talked about the idea that he came up with it while he was going through microfiche of old newspapers from the New York Times in the, in the library of the, uh, of the New York Public Library. Okay. And I can see that too. I mean, there's, there's definitely that sense. And then he talked about being about the media. I mean, he's he's never really pinned it down. Actually, I think it's good. Yeah, well, that's and that's in character. He doesn't pin down. He doesn't do that. He doesn't play that game. He doesn't pin down the meanings of his songs, and he writes them in a way that are vague enough 
and people can just pro project whatever they feel it's about onto the song. Is that a, is that a double-edged sword? No, all I think every great artist should resist going too far into describing their intention in the work. The, the, the concept is that the, the, the author themselves is not as important as the work. Oh, I see what you're saying. Death of an author. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's something which I think nowadays is resisted because so frequently in academia they want to look at things in the lens of, like, the social structures and things that built this work. But right. I, I, Dylan, when he talks about his music, he talks about it as if he's discovering the songs, not necessarily being the sole producer of the work. I think that's apt, and I think that when you when you look at people who are truly great artists, that tends to be the case. There's they, they view themselves almost as a vessel for the work versus yeah vessel. I've heard him use that term. I think that's right. So that same year, he puts out Free Wheelin'. This is something that doesn't get discussed enough. He is present at MLK's "I Have a Dream" speech mm -hmm. at the March on Washington, and he plays before King's speech. This crosses over from music history to, like, proper American history. And it's not out of place that he was there. We're going to talk about later how many political groups and interests were trying to push and pull him in all these different directions into being some sort of figurehead for a movement. And he's always resisted that, with the sole exception, I think, of the civil rights movement. He participated in the civil rights movement to a degree, maybe not as much... As, as some other acts did, but like that seemed to be a, a political cause he was genuinely interested and supportive of. My understanding is, at the time, that was one of the things that put him in the spotlight, was the fact mm. that, he wa that he was so entrenched in the civil rights movement. You know, I, I think that that's one, something that I, I, for the time period, that's why he was doing the press conferences Yeah, about him being the voice of the generation. Oh, I that. see. Because he, he was at the forefront of that. Yeah. Maybe hanging out with Bernie Sanders. I don't know. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Could have, yeah, he was there as well. Yeah. His appearance there, very interesting. Yeah. And to his credit. Times There Are Changing, third album, released January 64. And that's just another wallop of those iconic 60s protest songs. Title track, With God on Our Side, Only a Pawn in Their Game. Those are two of his sharpest, most critical songs. Two of the sharpest, most critical songs I've ever heard. Pawn in Their Game, I think, is a song that every member of Antifa, and uh, <laughs> as well as everyone who stormed Washington mm -hmm. and is a proud boy, mm -hmm. that's something they should all listen to. Mm -hmm. And really think about the lyrics. Yeah. And really, and really think hard about what those mean. Yeah. And take a good look at America 60-odd years later, because not a heck of a lot has changed, unfortunately. I'll leave it at that. A segment I'm definitely keeping in. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm not. You're gonna edit that out? I'm not gonna cut that's that. That's gold, out. man. I give you gold. All right. I do believe that though. I think that's a that's a strong song. I think that's a it timeless is. song because the message isn't one of division. It's one of like take a look in the mirror and look at who's really running the show. It's about introspection and if to be a political activist on any level, you got to know who you know, the actual powers that be here. To, to quote the Wire, uh, follow the money. Right, right. It's always that. So now. Uh, we will proceed to be taken wildly out of context uh, for the rest of our lives. Well, you, have, you, have this, you, have, you have this, and you have me saying, I love ISIS. I love <laughs> Anytime a mic's in front of you. Anytime. Anytime. Oh, man. Get this guy on the radio. But one, one song you did mention very briefly in our first conversation was The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll. I feel like that's a song that should be taught in American history lessons. Mm -hmm. 
if you were going to post the lyrics of the, of any of his songs in an actual history textbook, I would pick that one because that really speaks to the injustice that was going on in the 60s, I think more than any of his more politically charged songs. I would agree. William Zanzinger killed poor Hattie Carroll With a cane that he twirled around his diamond ring finger At a Baltimore hotel society gathering yeah, We can talk about it, it's about the death of an um, African-American a servant, I guess, housekeeper, order, housekeeper yeah. at the hands of just a young, wealthy white man who just who beats her with uh, his cane. Drunk off and his ass. He gets yeah. out of, what was it, it's a two-month sentence? A very short sentence. Yeah, it was a joke of a sentence. It's a beautiful song, and it, 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 there's a couple songs on there that are powerful in that way. House Brown, oh, right. uh, I think you mentioned earlier, is as well. Where it's, it's just, not a lot of songs bring tears to my eyes. I think those are two that I think are, are intelligent enough in, in terms of the lyrics, but also powerful emotionally that actually will, will sometimes. I like that track because it's not the same sort of protest song that he was famous for in the 60s. There's this archetype of who he was, you know, blown in the wind, times are changing, that are these vague things that you can project whatever meaning you want onto them. That, that's not the case with this one. This is about a specific event that spoke to a larger cultural issue. Yeah. And that's why I think it, it serves more historical purpose. But for those listening who are new to Bob, we're only at album number three. Yeah. And, and, and he, you know, is it starting to come clear of, like, why he was so revered at his time? That, that speaks to just, like, I mean, I get why people were so taken by him. Yeah. And, I mean, even, like, you mentioned Times They're Changing and uh, Blown in the Wind. Honestly, of those sort of, like, you're talking about these kind of, like, grandiose or, or, yeah. or vague intentionally vague protest songs i would say when the ships come in is actually the best of, of the bunch okay and it was also recorded by uh, peter paul mary oh also scored a big charity did it got yep basically everything he did that was relevant got peter paul and mary are the ones who got and he made them a lot of money they owe him big time yeah but yeah that's a that's a really good song actually um and so it's a b-side that's the crazy mm-hmm. thing is we're talking about Lonesome to the Hattie Carroll. It's a B-side. These are right. not, you know, on the, the side one of the, the album. These are... And, unfortunately, because at this point, Bob was still just not charting. So, right. B-side and, and, and people... Uh, it wasn't getting played on the radio, certainly. Later in 64... This is another thing, like... How quickly these records are coming out. It's every six months. And world-class lyrics that most artists in their entire careers can't manage, and he's just dropping them every six months. Another side of Bob Dylan, August 64. The whole album, I found this interesting, it was recorded in one six-hour session in June of that year, and I think that shows through, and I think um, this was probably the one I'm least taken by of his 60s output. I know your favorite Dylan song is on this one. My Back Pages is yep. on this one. There's a couple of songs, actually, that he laughs, you know, because it's almost like an outtake, and they just kind of leave it in because it's a little funny. Motorcycle Nightmare, I imagine, might be one of Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Is All I Want to Do on this one? Yeah. You know what? This is where I'll say some negative. I hate that song. All I really want to do Baby, be friends with you. I like that song. I know, you know, and I'm probably <laughs> wrong to say, but there is, for all the, the hacked, lame ass Dylan impressions that came in the years 
years and years later. Yeah. They all seem to stem from that shit he's doing on All I Want to Do. Maybe be friends. He goes real high and then he goes real, you're right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. I mean, it ain't me, babes, on there, which and is I iconic. Absolutely. So is Ballad in Plain D. You know, that's. So if we're talking about songs in the album that I hate. Oh, oh, okay. All right, let's flesh that out a little bit. Why doesn't that one do it for you? Because he doesn't like it either. That one's about his breakup with uh, Suze Rotolo. And he has said years later that he regrets writing it so specifically because there was like, you know, he was sort of burying his own emotional or his own relationship baggage, which is a little, I guess, out of character for what he had been doing up until that point. I don't think he was comfortable with it. And I think it also produced lyrically... uh, an inferior piece of art. Sure. It was too personal. I didn't even realize the extent to which it was based off of the specifics of his relationship with her. But one does get the sense, listening to it with that knowledge, that maybe, you know, again, he's talking about how he's kind of a vessel for the art. Yeah. That maybe that just got too in the weeds. Yeah. Now, I, I will say Ballad Plain D does have a really good line in it, which is okay. the last line is, and I think he's talking about because he's newly single, and he's got his friends asking him about okay. being single and what's it like to be free, and he says, are birds free from the chains of the skyway? And I answer them most mysteriously, are birds free from the chains of the skyway? That's a great lyric. That is the only good part of that song. Interesting. That's the, that's the stand-up for it. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about one little famous story of, of Bob's from the 60s. It's when he met the Beatles. Yeah. Okay. This is just really funny. If, if you're not familiar with uh, Bob's story, grab one of the books about him and just look up this little story of where he meets up with the Beatles and smokes weed with them. He loved weed. <laughs> <laughs> and McCartney and Ringo had never smoked before. The other two did. But the first time that Paul and Ringo met Bob was also the first time they smoked weed. And sort of tracks. And the great story that comes out of that is McCartney gets so high, he, like, passes out. But before he passes out, he writes a note that he said that he genuinely thought he had discovered the meaning of life. And the little note he wrote for himself to remember just read... There are seven levels. Interpret, yeah. please. <laughs> so, in Buddhism... Oh, okay. There okay, are, there, there we go. There are seven degrees in meditation. Okay. I mean, seven's an iconic sort of mm. number that pops up here and there throughout various yeah. scriptures and things. Another little, little anecdote that came out of um, him meeting the Beatles was he goes to a Beatles concert shortly after, and supposedly he got a little kick out of how insane Beatles fans were and he enjoyed that musically and culturally they were seen sort of on the same level but like a Dylan concert versus a Beatles concert in 64 65 would have been wildly different experiences where yeah. with the Beatles you wouldn't you wouldn't have hear, heard them at all with Dylan there wouldn't be a lot of a whole lot of applause until the songs were totally completed and he seemed to really like that you know, the audience was hanging on his lyrics and not screaming and shouting just because he was, you know, the cute one. As Dylan is obviously very cute. Dylan was <laughs> Dylan was not, first of all. He was a good-looking man. Dylan was good-looking to be pushing it. But okay. He was not the, you know, monster that he is now. Right. 
well, you know why? And this is, I mean, if I said this about a woman, it'd be totally sexist. But, like, in the 60s, on video and in pictures, he's smiling a lot. Yeah. He seemed to be really happy. And as the decades wear on, this is, I guess, a little sad, you see less and less photos and less and less interviews where he's, you know, joking with reporters and trying to be charming. Maybe because he brushes his teeth every five days. <laughs> There is one interview of him in the 80s where he looks, I, and it was with the BBC. With the long earring. Yeah, and he looks like he crawled out from under a bus, yeah. you know? And it's just like, Jesus, guy, you don't, you know, you're worth millions. You don't have to do all that. But uh, whatever the case. Okay. Let's get back to his records. Okay, so March 1965. Now we're getting into the controversial part of the 60s for him with the record Bringing It All Back Home, which is his first, at least approaching, rock record. And this is the start of the Dylan Goes Electric era, which to this day baffles me that it was such the controversy it was. I really can't think of another artist that made such a, you know, in hindsight, mild change to the type of music they make that garnered such an insane backlash. Yeah. We talked about this. I mean, I don't think... I think the problem becomes we can't contextualize it because Dylan meant so much to so many different movements and people. As well as... I brought up the last time I mentioned it's similar to what happened with um, Radiohead. Mm. When they they, they changed, they started doing... went from sort of this lo-fi sound to Mm -hmm. doing some electronica and stuff. But again... That was specific to like one genre, one group of fans. It didn't have the. I mean, you're talking about the March on Washington. It yeah. didn't have the the socio political, cultural, you know, impact. Yeah, because it was it was fans who were like, "Hey, man, we made you right. our leader," and he was effectively saying like, "Yeah, but I didn't ask you to do that. I just wanted to sing some songs, and you put all this shit on me that I didn't ask for and actively do not want." That is also the first record, and this is just speaks to my music tastes, but that is the first record that of his that I really got into and really enjoyed. It opens with Subterranean Homesick Blues, which is, I know is another favorite of yours. Maggie's Farm is on there. And uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, which, of course, like the couple we've mentioned already, uh, not a big hit for Bob, huge hit for somebody right. else. Right. I mean, Subterranean Homesick Blues, of course, he invents rap. Yeah. Not really. <laughs> Right. There's a there's there's, there's 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 it goes back further, but he definitely in terms of the sound of it, it's it's definitely presages hip hop. John is in a basement mixing up the medicine. I'm on a pavement thinking about the government. The man in a trench coat, badge out, laid off. Says he's got a bad cough, wants to get it paid off. Look out, kid, it's something you did. And there are definitely hip hop artists that like point to that song specifically as being. You know, in the same way that rock fans point to, like, Rocket 88. Right. I don't know, Rock Around the Clock. Not songs that we actively listen to, but, like, at least acknowledge it as, oh, yeah, that was a formative piece for artists that we would come to love. Uh, how do you like uh, his version of Tambourine Man versus the Birds version of Tambourine Man? They're very different, actually. I'm not a huge fan of either. Okay. Honestly. I mean, Mr. Tambourine Man... My understanding of how it was written, even too, was just kind of like a long night. Maybe he's with the Beatles, that kind of thing. And then he, he got home and was just trying to kind of just be mellow, and that, 
that's the song. Don't take me on ship aboard your trip aboard your magic scroll. It's very, it's dated. I don't. I think that song is very dated. It is ever present in documentaries of any sort about the 60s. It is It is the one that, from the grab bag, right with, you know, White Rabbit and Born to be Wild, he's just grab bag songs and like, we got a scene in the 60s, throw some soundtrack under there, Mr. Tambourine Man, boom. And that's you know? not to its credit. Most, uh, sure. most of the stuff that he's written, I think, is, is, is somewhat, like you mentioned, timeless. Yeah. It has that appeal. That yeah. song has a very, it feels like it was something from like the Summer Love. Right, right. It was certainly before that, but I mean, it, it has that feeling of being something that would have been played during Summer Love. Mm. San Francisco. You know. All right. Now, around this time, the documentary Don't Look Back is filmed. Now, we mentioned this when we were sampling the whiskey because we talked about the, his drunken argument with Donovan. And at the time, you had only showed me that clip, and I just thought, oh, that's just, you know, two rock stars having a back and forth. But there's a little more to the Donovan thing when you see the documentary as a whole, because there are points where Bob sees, like, posters for Donovan, he's making little jokes about him, and you listen to some of the the things that they say to each other that, that are a little muttered in that, that clip that I'm going to play. I'm going to play that. I'm not taking no fucking responsibility for cats I don't know, man. I got enough responsibility with my friends and my own people. No, no, come on. I was out there. I don't care who was Hey, don't. I don't want none of your none of your shit, man. I'm not glassing shit. I'm not giving you shit. What'd you do it for, man? What'd you throw a glass in the street? I didn't throw a glass in the street. Well, show me the person that did. If you don't have him here, man, I'm not going to ten. You better take responsibility for it. All right, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You got him here? No. Hey, man, I'm not kidding you. You think I'm kidding? He's going to clean up that glass, man. Like Donovan says to him drunkenly, you're a big noise. I'm a small noise. I'm nothing. And it's just like, oh, okay, holy crap. There, there is way more to this argument than who threw the glass. I know a thousand cats that look just like you, man. Talk just like you. Oh, fuck off. You're a big noise, you know? I know it, man. I know a big noise. You know, I'm a bigger noise than you, man. I'm a small noise. Right. I'm a small cat. That's right. Oh, Listen, God. if I'd have what thrown a... Hey, you're anything you say you are, man. I'm you say nothing. you're a small... You're nothing. I'm nothing. I, I believe you. Nothing. I believe you, man. Boys. The context for all this is that Dylan and Donovan and their camps are at the same hotel, and someone in Donovan's posse throws a glass out of the window that shatters on the street. Dylan catches wind of it and is pissed and goes up in Donovan's face, says, hey, man, who threw the glass? We can't be having that around here. It's, you know, and then they have an argument about it. But I think that argument serves as sort of like a vehicle for both of their self-esteem insecurities a little bit. I got a, a low-key competitive vibe from both of those guys, and that's not uncommon with musicians. I think one of the things that maybe set Dylan off was at that time period, I mean, Donovan gets remembered more for like Mellow Yellow, mm -hmm. uh, Atlantis. Like, oh, it's yeah. It's not that that is incredibly dated at this point. Mm -hmm. I like his stuff, but... When he was first out, they, they were starting to make comparisons between him and Dylan. Right. And we're starting to call him, like, the Dylan of Scotland. And oh, okay. Things. I mean, he's derivative of Dylan. He's yeah. Not, he's nowhere near as good as a, of a lyricist or as Dylan is. Um, which is that the small the small noise. Right. Bigness. I mean, even his first big song, Catch the Wind. Okay. Catch the Wind. Oh, okay, okay. Blowing in the wind. I mean, yep. the whole thing is just derivative of Dylan entirely. So I don't know why Dylan let it get under his skin. 
That's that's the to me is the weird thing is the idea that Dylan let it get under his skin. Well, that's my thing is that I think even though he's as heralded as he is, deep down there is some wild insecurity. And even though, yeah, he was a bigger deal than Donovan, even at the time, I think what you see in the documentary is him sort of exerting, like, him proving himself to himself. It's like, this is my alpha moment. I'm going to show this guy who's boss. But then, just a little bit later in the doc, like, they're buddies again, and he's apologizing to Donovan. He's just like, hey, man, I just didn't want that glass to hurt anybody. If you're sober, I just didn't want the glass to hurt anybody. Huh? I didn't want the glass to hurt anybody. Okay. They're singing songs. He's being very complimentary to Donovan. You know, so that's this weird dynamic of Bob where it's like he's very insecure, so he kind of lashes out. But then afterwards, he, he runs over and he's like, hey, man, I'm, I'm sorry about all that. Are, are we cool? You know, that I like that. That's humanizing him to me a little bit. All right. Do you not like that? <laughs> no, I do. Or do you disagree? I, I do. I just, I just find it interesting because he was already so well known. I mean, that for him to get weird about Donovan, I mean... Well, you know, it makes me think it's too bad there weren't any cameras in the room with him and the Beatles, because, I mean, there's four of them and one of him. Does he have that same sort of, like, alpha vibe if Lennon makes a snarky crack, or does he sort of kind of fold into himself a little bit? Well, it, the, at least in the video in the, in the car... Oh, yeah. He's so out of it that when Lennon does make a snarky <laughs> comment, he doesn't even like... Oh, no, he does. Yeah. No, he defends himself. Yeah. He says something to the effect of, you know, I could write a song about watching baseball at midnight, and it would be so beautiful that it would be better than anything you've ever produced kind of thing. <laughs> and the thing is, like, it kind of shuts Lennon up because it's probably, probably true. Probably true. Probably true. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that sort of leads up to the uh, the famous Newport Folk Festival, 1965. This was the third time Dylan played Newport. But in 1965, he goes electric and plays a set with the Butterfield Blues Band. And this is another point where it's a little hazy on what actually happened. So he plays electric for this folk audience. Supposedly, the sound quality is not set up for a rock band or an electric set at all, so it's totally distorted, the volume's very high, and the crowd does not react. There's audio of booing, and a number of people backstage, including Pete Seeger, were very upset, and there's some discussion on were they upset because the sound quality was so bad, or were they upset because, at least in Seeger's case, you know, there's a guy that is almost like a protege of his betraying the music scene, you know, that they were expecting him to carry on. Yeah. I mean, I the thing is, bringing it all back home had already been released at that point, right? Right. And, and, and Sears talked about the fact that he really loved Maggie's Farm. He loved the great song. Yes. Um, I think, like, Lightning Hopkins performed at, New, at Newport that year also. So there, there was already artists who were blues broadly, mm-hmm. or, I mean, folk genres broadly, who were performing electric music right. at that festival. Um, so I, when Seeger says that he didn't really have an issue with the fact that he had gone electric and just truly had an issue with the sound quality, was angry at the sound engineer, Yeah, I gotta believe him. Yeah. He doesn't strike me as the kind of guy that would hoist that on, you know, Dylan is this sort of, I think Seeger saw himself as, as too much of a 
protege of Guthrie and that tradition, and, and which was always living and always adaptive. I just don't. I don't think he was that kind of guy. But he was angry about that. Well, there's something to be said about uh, Pete Seeger's father was also in attendance at that show, and that guy had a hearing aid, and apparently that was uh, going haywire with the oh, bad okay. sound. So you know, Pete Seeger's also looking at his dad, who's having a hell of a time, and that might have been. Uh, also why he was upset. But on the other hand, in No Direction Home, Dylan says that he heard that Seeger was mad and wanted to cut the power, and he was just like, that hurt me, man. That cut me deep, you know. So if, if Dylan thinks that, if, or or thinks that enough that he would say that, and they never, I don't know, did they never clear the air, you know, or why would he bring that up if he didn't think it was because Pete was mad at him? Well, it's also, though, I mean, you're talking about the way, I mean, you talk, first of all, you're talking about a huge cultural event that might have been precipitated by the fact that the dude's dad had a bad hearing aid in, mm-hmm. um, which, that speaks volumes of just about history in general. Yeah, but like, sure. But I, I guess for, for me, if I ask you, hey, man, were you angry at me when, when that happened? Because I've heard from people you, you were, mm-hmm. and you're like, no, 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 the sound was bad. And then you've got, like, four other dudes who are like, no, I was there. Seeger was really pissed yeah. about the fact that you went electric. I mean, I might openly, like, between the two of us, like, we're good. Yeah. But then later on, I'm like, yeah, I'm really worried because, like, my understanding is he was very upset about that. That doesn't That's... mean that doesn't mean that it was actually a result of him being upset about him going electric. Perfectly reasonable. Yeah. yeah absolutely. In any case, an interesting little event, but he was definitely being booed, and it's not necessarily just because of the sound. From the audience, there were definitely folk fans in attendance that did not appreciate him plugging in his oh, guitar yeah. and playing with um, Paul Butterfield. But let's move on to the album that I'd say is his most famous, Highway 61 Revisited, released August 1965, featuring his up until I guess last year biggest hit. It was a number two hit, like a Rolling Stone. <laughs> <laughs> can't believe I can't say that's his biggest hit anymore because it's technically not true. Murder Most Foul. Right, that's, that's his right. number one. Hold off for five more episodes. Yeah, right. We'll get to it. <laughs> well, Like a Rolling Stone is certainly his most recognizable song, even all these years later. And I'm not asking you if Highway 61 is your favorite record, but do you think it's his best record? You know, the problem is I don't think Dylan's got a lot of great albums. Oh, okay. Um, I think he's got a lot of great songs, and I think he's got a lot of albums that have a ton of really great songs on them. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a lot of bands who produce better albums than than Dylan. So that's a weird question, you know? Like, how do I answer it? I mean, it might be, it might actually be his most cohesive album. As an album. The songs make sense together. Yeah. There's a definite flow to that album that's maybe not present in some of his other works. Okay. It's later. Blood on Tracks probably would be Blood on Tracks. a little okay. bit more as an album. It's more consistent. How about the one that followed Blonde on Blonde? Honestly, I dislike Rainy Day Women so much that that <laughs> like ruins it. That's the first song on that album. <laughs> Such a bummer because I love yeah, that yeah. song. I put that I put that album in in my yeah that's also 
I put okay. that in and literally like just immediately. Track two. <laughs> Track two. <laughs> you mentioned this when we were sampling whiskey. Dylan's not a guy who gets enough credit for the musical composition beyond the lyrics. And when you said that, you know, I sort of just didn't, you know, just shrugged. It was just like, okay, if you say so. But revisiting Blonde on Blonde, I had to uh, revisit my opinion on that. There's not a lot of standout, like certainly no real radio yeah. hits on there, but that album flows together beautifully. It was a very nice record just to have on. And if I could afford it, <laughs> I'd definitely get one on vinyl. Again, though, it's very dated. Sure, no, it definitely felt from the era. Do you have any thoughts on Highway 61 or Blonde on Blonde? I feel that we run the risk on going over something that is... Those two records have been talked to death. Those are the top... What Rolling Stone would put those yeah. in the top of all their lists. Like, these are some of the quintessential records of the 60s. And beyond... Hey, I like them. I don't think I yeah. have anything particularly insightful. I mean, the song itself, Highway 61 Revisited, uh, oh, has yeah. some of that quintessential Dylan humor we were talking about earlier. Right. Wait, uh, God asked Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me up. Yeah. God said, no. Abe said, what? <laughs> you can do what you want, Abe, but it's a, it's a classic. That's that is true. Uh, I do love that. And that's sort of why I feel like that title track and uh, Like a Rolling Stone and a couple others. Team Soul Blues is good. He's got yeah. some good stuff. He plays in, I mean, he still plays in concert a lot. Let's circle back to the sort of the culmination of the blowback on the going electric thing. The incorrectly labeled bootleg Royal Albert Hall show actually occurred at Manchester's Free Trade Hall in England, May 17th, 1966. This is the famous closing scene in No Direction Home. He's playing an electric set. He's backed up by the band. By the way, we totally skipped over that, or are going to skip over that. Dylan's collaborations with the band, we are tabling, and we are putting that entire conversation into our next episode because Basement Tapes uh, weren't released until 75, and I know it was recorded now, but we got a lot to cover in this one, believe it or not, with Dylan in the 60s. So we're going to put all his stuff with the band in the next episode. So he's at Manchester's Free Trade Hall. He's playing an electric set with the band. He's coming out for the encore. And they capture it on film and on record. Someone from the crowd shouts, Judas. Yeah. And it shakes him. And there's video of him. And he says, you know, I don't believe you. You're a liar. And he turns to the band and he says, play it fucking loud. And they do, and it's this awesome ending that, you know, Scorsese used in the direction home. That aside, there's no nuance here. There was at least some faction of his folky right. fans that were furious, even a couple years now, yeah. into him playing electric. Yeah. I mean, this is a country that riots after soccer games. So, like, <laughs> the idea that somehow they're going to hold back when he right. goes electric... Again, I don't think we can properly understand the context under which he, he, he made those changes and the effect it had on that group. At the same time, I mean, to compare a guy picking up an electric guitar to the, the death of Jesus Christ right. is a little bit <laughs> far-fetched. A little but, heavy. Yeah, a little, yeah. Do you love the, the sort of the response and the audacity of simply just, like, looking away from the audience going, play a fucking loud. Right, yeah. Like, you know, we're doing this. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. 
The thing is, too, like, it's a bad analogy anyways. Of course. Because who's who's Christ? Right. In that, in that it just, like, folk music is, like, <laughs> the savior? I mean, it's a bizarre thing to say to somebody, but whatever. So the other thing that was going on, I mean, this didn't help. This Judas scenario did not help, given that at the time he was touring constantly under a hell of a lot of pressure from his label, starting to realize what a bad record deal he had with his manager, Albert Grossman, and starting to push back on that, which was not going well. He was trying to make his own documentary or be involved in another documentary that I didn't see called Eat the Document. In 65, 66, this is all starting to compress on him really bad. And on July 29th, 1966, he gets his, in his motorcycle accident. Yeah. And if you read about the circumstances around the motorcycle accident, what was reported at the time was not really what happened. Like, he never went to a hospital. Right. He stayed at some doctor's house for a couple of weeks. And there are some, just kind of wondering out loud, was this sort of, not staged, but maybe taken advantage of so he could get out of all of these yeah. pressures and obligations that were really, at this point, unreasonable for him to you know be expected to deal with and he took an extended period of time off and did not tour until the 70s yeah when he came back to tour in the 70s i, I believe that's when he started with the rolling thunder he started putting like the white pancake makeup on yeah and supposedly they treated that as if he was like covering up scar like facial scarring from oh, no the accident and stuff okay but again you see in the 80s and uh you know the worst thing on his face is a really long earring <laughs> so i mean realistically to me and that mustache <laughs> Um, so, I mean, realistically, I don't know. I, I think you're right. I think it was definitely maybe, was he still kind of having issues with the record company and specifically his, uh, with his manager? Yeah, I mean, so, yeah. I mean, it could have been a good opportunity to really be able to literally hit them in their purse. Yeah, it's funny. He was leaving Albert Grossman's house. Yeah. And he's coming down that road. And it's just like, that gave him sort of this get-out-of-jail-free card, you know, for a couple of years there. And I believe that's... In the aftermath of the accident, that's when the basement tapes with the band was recorded. Like I said previously, we're going to table that discussion for Dylan in the yeah, 70s in the next episode. So let's get to a record that is probably, besides his debut, maybe the most overlooked of the 60s, John Wesley yeah. Harding. Those are mostly like story songs. And what sticks out to me about this record is it comes out in 67, after the Summer of Love, and kind of around the time that the Beatles did Sgt. Pepper's, the Stones did their Satanic Majesty's Request, Jefferson Airplane did Surrealistic Pillow, so like acid rock is starting to become a thing, and these pop rock bands are doing big blown up overproduced records. While these guys are zigging, Dylan zags and does not quite country and not quite folk, but a low key album with songs that don't have choruses and the only real standout track from that record is all along the watchtower there must be some way out of here say the joker to the thief there's too much confusion i can't get no relief and he released as a single didn't chart and six months later yeah hendrix covers it becomes arguably the song of the 60s. Yeah. Oh, 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 the watchtower. 
it's funny though. I mean, like for Dylan, that wasn't a big song. I, I think, I think actually the biggest Dylan, if we're saying like Dylan mm-hmm. performing song on mm-hmm. that album, is probably "I'll Be Your Baby Tonight." Mm-hmm. It's, it's still kind of well regarded. But so much so when we were talking about this, I said to you in preparation for our pod, I said I think I found out I didn't have to even listen to that many of the albums again, like leading up to it, sure. because I listened to them so much as a kid, and even just as an adult, young adult, and everything. I said, except for John Wesley Harding, because I, I never owned it. <laughs> yeah. I never listened to it. And obviously, I'm aware of a lot of the songs just from some of the bootlegs and other things. Mm. But yeah, other than I'll Be Your Baby Tonight and All Along the Watchtower, it's it's devoid of any... Uh, Seems to get lost yeah, in the shuffle. Was it? You know, like the, the Lonesome Hobo. There's some other stuff on there. Um, when I was listening to it, nothing really jumped out at me. I hadn't listened to Blonde on Blonde all the way through before either. And that one grabbed me just because of the composition and same thing with the next record we'll talk about. Those were fairly new to me, and they left an impression. This one, not so much. Yeah. Let's wrap it up here with the final Dylan record of the 60s. Nashville Skyline, released April 1969. First and foremost, Dylan's vocals on this record are wildly different than Zon. anything else he did before or after. Yeah. How did he get that sound? Why did he... Get that sound. <laughs> lay, 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 lay across my big brain's bed. Lay, 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 lay across my big brain's bed. Yeah, I think he's doing Hank Williams. I think okay. he's literally just parodying Hank Williams. We're trying to. It's the Dylan version of Hank Williams. Okay. And that would sort of make sense because this is sort of a country record. Not a straight country record. It's pretty straight. I, I think it's honestly, you look at the music that's been produced in the country market at that okay. time period. Not a well-regarded album. I, I love it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, that's I, top of my life. I love, I love it. But uh, I was just going to say, like, I know it's not too well-regarded, and that sucks because I really enjoyed it. It's a really good album. Yeah. Johnny Cash stopped by the recording session, and this is sort of reminiscent of that famous photo of him with Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis. But anyway, it's this famous recording session. These guys were all doing songs together, and I think there was some hope that they would be able to recapture the magic by sticking Johnny Cash in a studio with Bob with two guitars and just hitting record. And the two guys had a lot of mutual respect for each other. Unlike Bob's relationship with Pete Seeger and some of these folk guys, it was not complex. Johnny Cash freaking loved Bob, and it was mutual. Bob loved him, too. And they started kind of playing guitar with each other. Nothing really came out of it except for a re-recording of uh, Girl from the North Country. Yeah, which is a good song. By the way, hey... Oh, I am aware of the, the photo. Oh, okay. And, it, I, and it's Carl Perkins. There you go. And I, and I didn't use my smartphone to find any of that information <laughs> out in real time. <laughs> Honestly, with that picture, it's just low-key the four most famous white guys who were pop acts at the time. But was, anyway. Was Jerry Lee Lewis's cousin there? <laughs> That's why he's got a big smile on his face. And he's I, looking at his 40-year-old cousin. And I think Cash only did it because the ostrich that his chest open years later was making him do it (laughs) but anyway so Nashville Skyline I think they really wanted some magic to happen with Cash apparently just wasn't there except for their cover of Girl from North Country you know it's too bad because like I've seen clips of them performing 
together, and it's yeah. always awesome. Like, those are two yep. of the best acts that America ever produced. I don't know why it's so reviled, though. Do you, like, have a sense of why even the artists themselves, even why J- Johnny Cash, and I, I get the idea that I, I like everything. So, you know how I was talking about earlier about um, All I Want to Do being that prototypical, like, what all the shitty Dylan impressions yeah. are based on? For a long time... Lay Lady Lay was sort of my lame ass <laughs> Dylan impression yeah. would be making fun of that song in particular. And that's, again, bad on me because upon revisiting it, I have to admit I kind of like that song now. When I was younger, I didn't. And I think that was maybe one for whatever reason people did not cling to, even though it was a bit of a hit. Dylan wasn't happy with that song. He didn't want it released at all, and it took uh, the famous head of, I think, CBS Records, Clive Davis, was the one who was just like, no, man, this is a hit. You've got to put it out. He acquiesced, put it out, and it became the last hit of his in the 60s. The thing is, there's a great turn of phrase in there, which is, his hands are, or his clothes are dirty, but his hands are clean, and you're the best thing that he's ever seen. Which, to me at least, paints such a picture in just four lines Mm -hmm. of, like, this encounter. He lost no steam at this point. His lyrically, he was still there. So the last fun little thing that I really like about Nashville Skyline is that it's the first Dylan record to have Charlie Daniels on it playing guitar. And I don't like what Charlie Daniels became, like, later in life. You know, on the back end of his career, got a little too redneck. But, like, when he died, there was a lot written about him last year. And I got his book, and him being on these records, he said, like, that's what got him truly in the door. He had been, you know, hustling as a you know working musician for a long time, but as soon as he was, like, listed in the liner notes of a Dylan record, which was e- even sort of rare at the time that they would actually put the musicians on there, he was just like, that got me work. You know, he was on a, one of Ringo's albums, you know? <laughs> I think he did some work with uh, Leonard Cohen, you know, that like... Was before Ringo got sober, though. Don't that's forget. correct. <laughs> But I think that's pretty cool that you wouldn't necessarily connect a guy who became like a conservative firebrand musically, not just on social media, but like... I didn't know that about Charlie Daniels, is that... Charlie Daniels wrote a lot of like real hard right-wing songs, some of which are despicable at this point. But I'm very conflicted about Charlie because like, yeah, there are some some songs in his discography that are gross and I don't throw down with them, but like... His stuff with Dylan is cool, and he also has some other tracks that are also very good. So, for all the criticism he gets, he was a big part on those records, and Dylan picked him out specifically and was just like, I want this guy playing guitar. And he got to play on the next two records as well, and we'll talk about that in the next episode. Unfortunately, one of those two records is sort of famously bad. The last note on Nashville Skyline, in the book Johnny Cash, The Life, Cash is quoted of saying... It's not up to par for either one of us. I think he was embarrassed over that, and I don't blame him. And that is sort of kind of a, oh, geez, they weren't really fond of that record, and maybe that's why fans aren't very big on it. I think when you really look at it, it was Dylan trying to do not just like traditional country. It was Dylan trying to do country that was popular at the time period. And I think he was successful to an extent, and I think it looks better in hindsight because we were distanced from that. But I think for Cash who was an artist in that actual idiom, I think he probably looked at it as almost being parody of the music that he was listening to. Because these were his hit-making years. I mean, yeah, even like... Cash was laying down his best stuff around this time. Yeah, even the name of the album, Nashville Skyline. A little on the nose. It's called Lay Lady Lay. Yeah. 
Payday. I mean, these are song names that are like... Country uh, Pie. Yeah, Country Pie. I like Country Pie. Country Pie was my favorite song ever. Oh, me, oh, my. Yes. Love that Country Pie. <laughs> yeah. Just like old saxophone Joe, when he's got the hog's head up on his toes. Oh, me, oh, my. Love that Country Pie. You know what I like about it? It's his most fun album. Oh, okay. Sort of like the, if you're having a social yeah. event that's maybe like outside, that's the one you put on. Yeah, and it doesn't feel as dated as Rainy Day Women, okay, which is also, enough. I guess, a fun song, but like for me, they'll love it. Yes, Rainy Day Women, a little silly. Nashville Skyline stuff is fun, but not silly. Yeah, yeah. barbecue's a good. I can see that, yeah, I can see that. So my final thing before we get to our favorites and we wrap it up, is I sent this to you a couple days ago just to listen through it, and it's more about sort of this broader phenomenon that we've already touched on. The Hollies put out a full Dylan cover album in May 1969, and years later, The Birds put out an album of all Dylan covers, but that wasn't recorded at the time. That was just a collection of all of the Dylan covers that they had released as singles in the 60s. Not album cuts, they had an album's worth of singles from the 60s. So it's not just a one-off of All Along the Watchtower or the animals grabbing the arrangement for House of the Rising Sun. This guy was producing not just some of his best stuff in the 60s, but other iconic artists of the 60s were just grabbing it as much as they can, getting it on the charts, having hits, making tons of money. You know, starting from Peter, Paul, and Mary doing Blown in the Wind, probably almost every month of the 60s had one of Dylan's songs somewhere in the charts. So are there any of these cover projects that you think are good or that you have strong feelings on? Do you think some are good? Do you think some are bad? Do you think it's an overall positive that they were all covering him like this? Or do you think it's like cheap and hacky? No, I don't think it's cheap and hacky. I mean, if you have an artist of that caliber who's producing this music, but they're doing so in a way which is maybe not totally palatable to the mainstream, I don't think there's anything wrong with a lot of other artists taking the music and, and, and putting it out there. You, for whatever reason, felt the need to send me this, the, the Hollies, <laughs> Words and Music by Bob Dylan, which, first of all, other than the name of the album is fantastic. I love the idea yeah. of just, we're just going to lean into it. But we, we talked about, I, I don't know why you felt the need to send me that one. Cause it, by and large, I think that was the first one that it was an artist doing an entire record of just doing covers. That I could be sense. wrong. No, that makes sense. Big name 60s artist. Graham Nash left the Hollies <clears throat> yeah. basically because he saw they were starting to put this project together and he wanted nothing to do with it. And he said, like, yeah, they were doing Blowing in the Wind, but it had this, like, really silly pop yeah. production, and it's like, I don't want to do this at all. And to his credit, I guess, I don't he, think, he walked out of there. I don't think I've heard versions of Dylan's music by a top-tier band or a band that, you know, has household name recognition where the versions they did are more divorced and in terms of the attitude and the sound and, and the emotion of the music from the lyrics. I, I, I can't imagine it being possible. With the exception of, and I thank you for this, Joe, Quit Your Load on Ways. Is oh, okay. Their version of Quit Your Load on Ways. Well, if you can't quit your sinning, please quit your load on Ways. And it makes sense because the Hollies kind of have that long cool woman in a black truck. They have that kind of, but they get into it, that kind of vibe. Oh, yeah. It works with that song. They're not a bad band. Like, uh, say that, in No Direction Home, Bob gets asked about the covers, and he was just like, oh, yeah, you know, this act had a hit, and he's like, something called The Turtles. 
covered yeah. one of mine. And like the turtles, you know, they do the happy together song. Yeah. And they largely suck. And I looked up their covers, and it's just like, oh, they had a couple of Dylan songs. He didn't seem thrilled with it. And Peter, Paul, and Mary's stuff has become part of, the, I think, the, the canon. Their Dylan covers are more part of the canon than, than their own music. Oh, yeah. And, and I, I can appreciate that. I still think Dylan's versions are better. Mm-hmm. Uh, top of my head, versions of his music pr- produced by other artists. And we'll just, should we keep it just to the 60s stuff? Let's keep it to the 60s. Okay, and now. almost, honestly, let's set aside Jimi Hendrix all along the way. Yeah, that's show. the one. I mean, that, that stands, that's that far, it's superior. It's, it's far superior. Unquestionable. On par with, and maybe a little superior, would be Man from Man's Quinn the Eskimo. Oh, okay, yes. Do the version do that? Yes. Come on out. Come on with it. Covers from different decades in those episodes. No mention of Guns N' Roses today. Wheels on Fire, band version of it's very good. Oh, okay. The the version they do together on the basement tapes, Wheels on Fire, probably the band's version is probably better. There's a few here and there. The Birds, Mr. Tambourine Man, is that closer to the the Hollies missing the point, or do they sort of get the point and just make it more a little better for the times? Okay, the Birds version of Mr. Tambourine Man is better as a song of the 60s Okay. than Dylan's version of the song is either for the time period or as part of the rest of the film. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. For what it is, the Birds song is a better version. But that's a rarity. Yeah. Okay, all on the Watchtower, the Birds and the Fan are some of the select few that managed to improve upon the source material. The problem is you have to go because he's been covered so extensively. You almost we never to get to only. Them, yeah. And at the very least, I think they do all serve a purpose, even the lousier ones, as an access point for pop audiences. It's not worth nothing. There are going to be some casual listeners who really like even the Turtles version. And then maybe just looking up that song, they find out, oh, it was written by this other guy. Well, who's that? And then they find Bob's version, and it's just, you know, grows from there. All right. Unless you got any any other observations, I'm ready to wrap it up with our favorites. What I'm hoping we can do is our top three favorite albums yeah. from the 60s and our top five favorite songs from the 60s. And I'm happy to go first if you need a minute. Okay. I think I, I, think I have a really good idea of, honestly... Um, I think for albums, you know, probably, start with albums. Yeah, let's start with albums, and then, and then you can do your albums if you want. Okay. We'll go to songs. I'm running this pod. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think um, in no particular order because I don't want to do that. But I think that for me, Nashville Skyline, just love that album. Bringing it all back home, and then probably Freewheeling after that. Wow, that is frightfully close. What I was going to say, <laughs> in no particular order, I'm going to say Nashville Skyline, bringing it all back home, and Blonde on Blonde. Really? Blonde on Blonde, because sort of what what you you mentioned, like in our previous podcast, his composition really comes through on that record. There's a lot of material. It's not necessarily radio stuff, but like there was nothing I really wanted to skip. I was enjoying it. Maybe not as lyrically challenging as some of his other stuff. And I know we have very different opinions on this. I love Rainy Day Women. (laughs) It's a party song as far as I'm concerned. And there's not a lot of Bob songs that are like that. So I guess that's our only point of divergence you're in good company i mean there's that's i feel like a, most musical artists most critics put blonde and blonde as being maybe his best album sure anyways let's move on to songs no particular order can you give your favorite five songs from the 60s yeah that's harder subterranean homesick blues is up there maggie's farm mm-hmm. 
my back pages. Mm -hmm. Desolation Row might Ooh. be on there. I do like Desolation Row an awful lot. And then not the version of Girl from the North Country that's on National Skyline, which I do like. Mm -hmm. I like that whole album, but the version on Freewheeling. Okay. I, I love that song. Yeah. Iconic picks. For me, Hard Rain's going to fall. Rainy Day Women, number 12 and 35. I'm going to go take a pretty basic one here. Like a Rolling Stone. Yep. I mean, I remember when we saw them in concert, that was the most fun part of the show, sing-along kind of thing. I enjoyed that quite a bit. I like his cover of All Along the Watchtower. His what original, yeah, no, his what version, am I saying? I know what you're saying. <laughs> I like his original version of All Along the Watchtower. Testament, though, to the fact that Hendrix made that his own to the point where it's almost not a Dylan song. It's like his cover of... Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you could argue that... Hendrix took that song, you know, took ownership of that song, and it should be more associated with him than Bob. Yeah. But anyway, and then a real wild card for the fifth one, and maybe I'm being a little cute here, but Nashville Skyline Rag, the That's instrumental piece. Yeah, the interlude between uh, the second I think it's the second song on the album, right? It's great. Yeah, that one I had to re-listen to a couple of times. I like instrumental pieces from artists who don't typically make them sure and that's a nice little piece of music it narrowly beat out highway 61 title track all right so with that let's wrap up here thank you for coming on i hope this was fun i think we did a really good job if oh, i yeah. pat myself on the back a little bit the next time we get together is going to be probably about a month it'll be part two of our dylan through the decades series where we listen to his records from the 1970s of which there are many and we also have to talk about the basement tapes, music from the Big Pink, the Last Waltz, and the band. So we got our homework set I, up. For I'm us. excited. <laughs> I'm excited by how inconsistent his '70s output was. Yes, yes, because we are going to have some good old-fashioned, proper, yeah. bad records. Yeah. And we're going to start off the show with one of those next time. So <laughs> I'm really excited for that. I just want to cite a few sources for uh, my research. If you want to learn more about Bob. I would really recommend a couple of books, uh, starting with his own, Chronicles, Volume 1, uh, written by Bob, put out in 2004. Rumors that he was going to make Volumes 2 and 3 in the coming years, but it sounds like he didn't really enjoy writing that first one, so I don't <laughs> think those are ever coming. I would recommend Down the Highway, The Life of Bob Dylan by Howard Soons, Sounds, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, so you're welcome. And then Bob Dylan, Behind the Shades, Revisited by Clinton Halen. That is a phone book of the guy's history. So if you want to get that book, give yourself some time to read it. There's a lot there. Uh, and, of course, the films we mentioned earlier, Don't Look Back, which was originally released in 1967, and Martin Scorsese's No Direction Home. And with that, thank you for joining us here. I'm going to play us out with Chris's favorite song, My Back Pages. Girls' faces form the forward path from phony jealousy. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this, that means you did that one already. Thank you. Your time is valuable, and there is an infinite amount of content out there. So you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend the show to family, friends, or anyone you know looking for a podcast, particularly about music. 
Share our links in subreddits, Facebook groups, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at Play That Podcast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash play that podcast. And subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash play that rock and roll. Lots of great supplemental material like photos and vlogs on all three platforms. As play that rock and roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast. And finally, the big ask. Number four, please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal because it gives me something I can point to when pitching the show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chances I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here on this show. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock. Deceived me into thinking I had something to protect Good and bad I define these terms Quite clear, no doubt, somehow Ah, but I was so much older than I'm younger than that now It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.